0: I'm going to jump right into this because there's not much of a buffer on this film. Uh, this is a kind of a Christmas single goof. I'm going to do a 113 minute history of The Cure while watching the 1986 film The Cure in Orange, which was directed by Tim Pope. Uh, Tim Pope was the video director who sort of helped make The Cure in their big commercial. Uh, period in the 80s and 90s. Um, he started working with them in 1982 for the Let's Go to bed video. Uh, he had also done a clip. he did a clip for Talk Talk for the uh, It's My Life video, which had gotten him a bunch of attention, but he, he really was paired with the cure and, and uh, he had a genius kind of you know absurdist dadaist attitude toward the imagery and uh, the close to me video was a huge hit for them as well as in between days and helped break them in 1985. So if you want to sync this up with the in Orange video, uh, Simon Gallup, the bassist, is just about to pull the fake wig off of Robert Smith. There it goes, because Robert has shaved his hair off because uh, he's you know keenly aware of how his public image is overtaking the band, and uh, this is sort of the, the sort of pseudo um, authenticity integrity moves that he he kind of flirts with a little bit um, just to kind of keep the press from becoming you know too insubstantial, too fluffy. Um, it was just, there was a lot of lather around his look at this time because in between days had charted in the hot 100, Well, it charted at 99 on the U S hot 100. It had done well in England, head on the door was selling strongly in the college market. And so, you know, it was kind of the cure going from strength to strength though, because when the band came back together, they'd broken up in 1982 at the end of the 14 explicit moments tour. This is after the album pornography, which is the, the kind of the last in the trilogy of, of great cure goth, early eighties records. And, uh, Simon Gallup, the bassist, and Robert Smith were getting a lot of arguments or fighting. I don't really know exactly what's going on. The story's always been sort of kept um, under wraps, which is a theme with The Cure, where, you know, they've, they published a book, Ten Imaginary Years, in 1986, right around the same time as this film, In Orange, came out. And the book is full of anecdotes, and they're all very funny and everything, but there's not a lot of, like, there's really almost no dirty laundry. And that's one of the things that, despite how... Available, they've been to their fans, particularly Lowell Tolhurst, the original drummer, um, who's just written a memoir, a very confessional memoir, um, that sort of prompted me to do this because I interviewed him. Um, I interviewed him for a podcast. We spent an hour on the phone um, while he's promoting this book called "Cured," you know, a tale of two imaginary boys, uh, which is ostensibly it doesn't make itself out to be a tell-all in any way, but. Um, I mean, and it's very affecting in, as a diarist kind of a memoir thing if you're curious about Lowell Tolhurst, But if you're curious about The Cure, there's not really that much there for you. It's like there's a lot of really brilliant, beautiful memories of growing up in late 70s suburban um, England. And uh, he tells this wonderful anecdote of you know, going to dances in a church and, and you know, trying to pick up girls and, and that sort of thing. And he, he remembers hearing 10 CCs, I'm not in love. Uh, and that was a very you know, strong moment image for him. Um, but on the whole, the book is extremely guarded and it's much more about his own uh, struggles with alcoholism and, and conquering his alcoholism and sort of unresolved issues with his, uh, his family. And in that way, his book is, you know, a strong piece of writing, but it is somewhat repetitive. And the issue there is that his promotion, you know, around this book, the interviews he's done are also extremely repetitive and I, I don't hold it against him. You know, you're 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 driving, flying all over the country, doing the same fucking interview over and over and over again, getting asked the same questions. What what reason do you have to open up to anyone? You know, he has no idea who I am. I'm you know some relative to him. I'm some kid. You know, Um, and over the course of our conversation, you know, by about like 40 minutes in, I think he started to understand that I wasn't like some Cure fan. You know, who had like all the singles and knew every set list they'd ever played that I was like actually a more kind of generally informed music fan and music critic. And I was able to contextualize them more than a lot of the people he talks to. But unfortunately our time was about up, you know, toward the end, by the time he started to kind of like get his blood going, I would say, um, because he, you know, he was telling me stories about how they were actually really close friends with, um, you know, specials, English beat and stuff. And like, he bought a drum off them and, and there was all sorts of like good stories happening toward the end of the conversation, but you know, where he is, it's a much more managed interaction. And so, it's not like I could, you know, we were going to get going at a point and then I had an open end. It was going to, you know, it was a closed you know, a window, a closed amount of time I had to talk to him. And uh, unfortunately, um, you know, he just, I, I, again, what what reason does he have to open up to, to some guy on the phone? So uh, I'm probably not going to end up publishing that podcast. Um, there's just not much to it. It was very, you know, fun and, and neat for me to talk to this guy who's, uh, band. I mean, he's the co-founder of this band, um, had been so important to me as a teenager growing up, and helped me sort of even explore my own sense of identity. You know, coming to to grips with adolescence and and you know dating and romance and and all this sort of um, all these these emotions that go flying around at that time. The Cure is like or was uh, the perfect soundtrack for that. This kind of Rimbaud, you know, like you know uh, impressionistic. Uh, Maupassant short story kind of a thing. Um, it's there's there's so much kind of primary colors to the lyrics and to the melodies. They're so basic in one way. I mean, almost like defiantly basic pop music because Robert Smith is like a classically trained nylon string guitarist and. And you had, you know, uh, Andy Anderson and Boris Williams in succession, incredible drummers. Um, I'm not a particular fan of Jason Cooper's turn at the kit, but he is a drum teacher. I mean, for the style that he plays, he is an incredibly talented drummer. I just don't think it suits The Cure's music. But that's not 100% his issue. It's also the fact that The Cure started using loops um, in concert, um, percussion loops and, and tape loops. And when you're playing to a click track everything dies. It becomes totally flat, and the tempo is every night dictated by that. And, and that's a problem, and it's a problem that it was a reason that Boris Williams decided to join The Cure in 1985, because he was playing with the Thompson Twins, who were all you know loops and, and uh, sound effects and shit. So every night it's the exact same nailed down with spikes, synthesized tempo. So if you, if you feel laid back and you want to have a little more swing in the beat, a little more backbeat, you can't do that. Or, or if you if you're on speed or you're just you know coked out of your mind, you can't play fast because you're tied to the fucking loops, and it's just really frustrating and not any fun. So, in Orange here, and we're at the second song now. Um, apologies for the running water, but I'm in my basement, and uh, like I said, everybody in my family's sick, so there's going to be a lot of running water. Uh, Piggy in the Mirror has started, so it, it's interesting. In Orange starts with two tracks from the top, which is an almost universally reviled Cure album. It's really a Robert Smith solo album, to be honest. Um, recorded in 1984, while at the same time, he recorded two other full-length albums. One with Susie and the Banshees, Hyena, and one as The Glove, a side project with the Susie and the Banshees bassist, um, Steve Severin, excuse me. And so, this whole period from 82 after the breakup of The Cure, following pornography and the 14 Explicit Moments tour, to the recording and release of The Top in 1984, this is Robert Smith's really bad drug period, where he's a total fucking wreck. Now, what drugs he's doing, that's not public information. You know, nobody's really put it out there. And um, that's fine. You know, he doesn't have to put it out there. But um, he was a real mess. And, and you know, in a kind of a polite way, he's said, you know, this was the bottom for me. And one of the songs he points to in particular is a B-side from this time called New Day. Uh, and he says, if you listen to that, my voice is just fucking gone. You know, just shredded, just reeds of... Nothing left, you know, but uh, sort of I guess sort of defiantly in a way Smith kept the top songs around and he continues to keep the strong songs from the top around in the set list. Um, Piggy in the Mirror is, has been played on a number of tours since, uh, 84. Shake Dog Shake made a number of resurgences kind of in their set list, opening the festivals in 1990. It's a great, it's the most, like, acid rock song ever, Shake Dog Shake. I can't recommend that one enough, particularly the album version, which has Andy Anderson on it. Now, Andy Anderson is, um, I mean, he might be my favorite drummer in The Cure's history. He joined the band when they were, you know, Robert Smith's trying to put the band back together, so he's going to get a lot of, um, you know, kind of uh, working drummers, let's say, people who were taking gigs. And Andy Anderson had played with uh, Orange Juice Jones, and he was kind of around. He was a circuit guy. But um, his turn in the cure was very difficult. Um, There's allusions to him sort of having had an alcohol problem, not like anyone else in the band didn't. But uh, he had a couple of, you know, uh, sort of dire physical outbursts um, culminating in some sort of rampage, they call it, that he went on in Japan, um, which may have been the result of, you know, racism or, or misunderstanding, you know, uh, Andy is still around and, and well-liked. I talked to Lowell Tolhurst during our podcast about Andy Anderson, um, and he still has great affection for him. Uh, I still think he was the best drummer they had. Um, but the thing was, the type of four four pop music the cure were playing to this point and here's the perfect example coming up they're about to go into play for today uh which is sort of the song where robert smith found it he he kind of this is the first period where the first song 17 seconds 1980 where he's like this is where we're going you know there's a little bit of a, a synthetic hand clap there and famously, even by nineteen eighty six, the audience screams along the very simple keyboard line at the beginning of this, and it's become a staple moment for any cure fan at a live show. You can hear it if you get any of their released live recordings like show. I'm not sure if it's in concert, um, which is the live album they released during the top tour in nineteen eighty four. But uh, you know, almost instantly the cor- the kind of punters and and uh you know footballers and hooligan types, and just you know the, the people who are a little bit more like, expressive, maybe macho, whatever, angry. I mean, there's plenty of women, too. Look at The Cure as kind of a, you know, have a pint band. Their entire audience was not, you know, precious, sensitive um, goths, the goth of ridicule, the goth of white pancake makeup and black lipstick and black fingernails. Their audience had a huge working-class aspect to them because you know, Smith and Tolhurster are from Crawley and Sussex, which is not, you know, it's not like they were dock workers or something, but they, you know, they had some sense of that kind of, you know, uh, you know, have a pint down in the pub, watch the football. There's that element to them and, and a great, there's a large part of their base that appreciates that and appreciates the fact that it wasn't like, you know, I don't want to bring up a, an incredibly stereotypic example, but like Depeche Mode, you know, they're, they're, It's a difficult conversation because you're getting into the notion of, like, homophobia and effeminate, you know, music, effeminate men, effeminate dancing. And The Cure never really did that. They had a kind of a wink and a nod, as I said in the recent podcast with Simon Reynolds. Everything The Cure did was was a wink and a nod and a kind of a goof in one aspect, except for the really dire, serious songs. And so uh, in Play for Today, you know, he's finding that kind of, like, fugue state this like vague cloudy sun streaked sort of mid-tempo keyboard wash that really no other bands got because everybody else tipped one way or the other new order were you know i don't want to say too synthesized but new order were definitively synthetic definitively um uh, run by the oberheim you know and all these uh, the, the prophets and all these synth- the emulator all these synthesizers um and then sampling, they were right out. New Orleans one of the first bands to ever release a record with sampling on it. Um, when they were doing Low Life, the, one of the singles around that time had like literally pad sampling. Nobody had done that uh, in that way. They had done the Fairlight CMI, which I've talked about in a couple of videos, which is a massively expensive um, digital ingested, ingested analog sounds. It was a digital workstation. It costs like, the equivalent of something like $100,000 in 1980. Like, four people had them. like Stevie Wonder, Peter Gabriel, Kate Bush, and, like, someone else. I think Trevor Horn had one. Um, the Cure never worked in that sphere of, like, the latest gear. You know, like, delete the studio, spend two million quid, and build a new one with the latest shit that no one else has. That whole, like, arms race of, of new electronic gear... It was a huge flavor of the 80s. If you were in the pop circus and like Depeche, and Depeche Mode and New Order and you know even like fucking Wham and uh, all these bands, and, and it, it hits the 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 wall with the Yamaha DX7, which was so affordable that fucking every band could buy it and use the you know pre-programmed. Um, pads on it. And um, we're not there yet, but later in this video is a cure song that falls so, so hard victim to the Yamaha DX7 problem, which is Kyoto song, which is literally a pad on the DX7 called Kyoto. And that's, that's rough. I mean, that's a level of, um, kind of asinine 9 uh, bass thinking that the cure had uh, largely avoided to that point so, but right now we're gonna do one of my favorite songs which is strange day It was the only close to uh, pop song on the um, the Catterwall pornography LP my high school cure cover band covered this song and I wrote an article about it uh, which is on medium I used to I don't have a video card anymore to to Translate to transcode it to digital. I had put these on YouTube at one point But I had this weird thing happen with YouTube that freaked me out. And so I deleted all my videos They've been re-upped by a couple of people now in a bootleg way, but not the personal ones um, Which included my high school band playing strange day and uh, a forest um, But yeah strange day is uh, the, the the Sixth song I believe short-term effect hanging garden uh, I'm not sure if I got the running order on pornography wrong. It's been a while. Yeah, Siamese twins, figurehead, strange day. So, um, a, 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 pornography was a really difficult album for them to record because it was the most anti-social, almost anti-musical album. Um, I mean, there were no bands doing this in the theater of pop music. This is just just shredding tracius miserableism. Just the most fucking. I mean, it was awful. It's just, it's hard to listen to. If you're just like a casual pop fan, pornography is just indigestible. Um, it's so raw and stark in the production, which is uh, by a guy called Phil Thornally, uh who ended up joining The Cure during that Andy Anderson period I was talking about, um, which, but for Phil and his kind of funkster, neck-high bass placement and, and finger-walking style, which uh, Simon Gallup still rages about, um, he was a very capable, great musician. He wrote the song, uh, Torn, that Natalie Imbruglia later had a huge hit with in the 90s. Phil's written a bunch of hit songs on the sly. Uh, he's an extremely successful producer and songwriter. But he did the, the most harsh, grating, unlistenable um, Cure record from a kind of a popular critical uh, response. It was, uh, I think Ian Penman reviewed it in the New Musical Express and said it was Phil Spector in hell. Someone else had a quote that said, Ian Curtis, by comparison, was a bundle of laughs. Yeah. So uh, pornography was a tough pill. Uh, yeah, but the important thing to hear and recognize is I'm talking about it, I'm talking about it. You might think I'm talking about some, you know, obscure nothing, but it went to fucking number eight. On the UK album chart. And The Hanging Garden, which doesn't even have a snare drum in it. It doesn't even have a kick drum in it. It's just toms. Like, dun, 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 dun. There's nothing. It's the most unmusical thing you can imagine. It went to number 39 on the UK singles chart. I mean, it's fucking bizarre. Goth was really, really huge. And if you go on YouTube and Google me, you can find a video I did explicitly, expressly about Goth and about this moment when. The Cure weren't pop. They weren't even, they were not attractive, musically or physically. That came after, you know? And I think all of that anger and frustration and young young 20s, angry young man thing, Robert sort of did a shitload of drugs in the two, three intervening years after, you know, you you can only clench your jaw so tight. You can only clench your knuckles so white. And They had done that and they just fucking exploded. It, you can't maintain that. You cannot keep the car on the fucking road and so Yeah, after uh, after pornography they left the road and that was that and um he did a couple of one-off singles and a lot of like really incidental, goofy studio singles to satisfy Chris Perry, their manager, and the Fiction Records A and R rep who signed them. He worked at Polydor. He had signed, legally signed, the Sex Pistols for Polydor, and then they fucked him, so he signed the Jam instead. And Susie and the Banshees. Um. But yeah, he when he was when they were doing pornography, Chris Perry's like what the is this how am i gonna market this are you shitting me so i think strange day which had been demoed during faith you know another semi-torturous um plotting depressing record um he was just like guys you know yeah you're you're an artist you're doing your own thing i still need a fucking single here strange day was the only song that perry thought was worth shit and i think he likes short-term effect too that one's sort of overlooked it's the second song um on pornography. You gonna, I mean, the first line on pornography is, it doesn't matter if we all die. Like, right out of the fucking gate. You know what I mean? Like, And it's this, like, insanely harsh drum machine, 100 years song, um, that later becomes a live staple and an endurance test for drummers. Uh, uh, Andy Anderson, as I mentioned, I loved his drumming. He was just so down on the beat. Um, and he did 100 years wonderfully because he played with these, uh, these uh, serrated warped hi hats. And he used, Drumsticks that were like fucking tree trunks. Uh, Lowell had a good laugh when I called him that on the podcast, but um, He was so tight, uh, but he was very upright as a drummer where Boris Williams who succeeded him here and is is shown um, On the in orange video and played on the cures most commercially successful albums he was uh, He's like it's hard to describe. He's like a fucking I don't know, like an ocelot or, or like a, a gazelle, some, some animal with like spindly arms. That's just very agile. And he he has this like thrusting ability to leap around the beat and, and to play heavy and fast. And then to, to play with some swing. I mean, the amount of stuff he could do is really remarkable. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's been a long running 20 plus year argument, Um, with Cure fans about, you know, whether Boris is the ideal drummer. I mean, you know, now you're looking back and it's like, the guy was in the band for six years. It's 2016 and they're on tour right now. Like, I mean, he's barely there. Jason Cooper's been the drummer in this band for like 20 years. You know, it's just not an argument. He is the drummer in the Cure. He's been the drummer in the Cure for three times as long as anyone else who was ever behind the kit. But, you know... There's this magic thing. There's this magic period for the cure in the mid and late 80s into Wish where they just, they were, they had it, you know? They had the goods, as Simon Reynolds said in our podcast. And Robert had the looks, as I said, in that podcast, and he relied on them heavily. Now, Simon, who's on screen right now, if you're watching along, Simon is just as hot now as he was in, like, 1980. He has gotten on, like, some kind of health kick thing. I don't know. He's like, I think he's like a mad off-road bike guy and um man seeing him even now he still looks fantastic um you know robert's a bit worse for the wear but nobody gives a shit about that anymore i mean the cure is a the cure is the cure doing the cure is the cure it's just like a barrel rolling exercise of fan celebration and and they're paying i've said this you know repeatedly or maybe i didn't i wrote it in a tiny letter um the cure are responsible for the financial well-being of like more than a hundred people you know who are involved in the cure as an organization you're talking people who go on the road with them, roadies, you're talking rights holders, you know, all this stuff. When The Cure go on the road, they allow people to exist. Um, And that's an unbelievable responsibility that Robert Smith, I think, is very matter-of-fact about, is that, you know, ever since he kind of realized that it was all kind of semi-over when Wild Mood Swings flopped, um, I think he very cleverly recognized, uh, and cannily so that th- th- this is just what the band's going to be from here on out. I'm not just going to rest on the laurels and roll out the barrel. I'll write new stuff, but like, you know, I'm kind of done. I've figured out what I am. You know, I- I'm not writing the same deep water as you anymore. I'm not writing faith. You know, I've kind of gotten it all out. And, and people have recognized that, and it's meant a lot to a lot of people, and I have no problem sharing that communally with them. We're just going to keep doing this. And I'll add new stuff to the mix that's, you know, funny or whatever. But, I mean, I personally, I don't think there's a worthwhile, enduring song in their catalog, um, apart from a couple of decent cuts on Bloodflowers, and, and actually the B-sides on Bloodflowers weren't too, too bad either. Um, but, you know, uh, that that was sort of it. I mean, I, w- when I was a kid, when I was, uh, I think I was 21, when while Mood Swings came out, I was still relatively young, and I was, had grown up with this band, and I was like, this is a piece of shit. Like, it's a disaster. You know, you got Sean Slade and Paul Kuderi coming over to produce you and do your hit singles, and you got every session drummer in the world jumping in. It was a mess. I, I mean, you just had this court case where Lowell Tolhurst has sued Robert Smith, um, for royalties. And this is in Lowell's book. Um, we went into it a bit, um, and I wasn't trying to flatter him, but the one thing I did say to Lowell that I, I think is a nice way to summarize his situation is he's the co-founder of this band. And in my view, and in the view of a lot of people who were really into the cure in the eighties, there's only two good cure records that don't have Lowell's name on it. So, I mean, he's there, you know, he's going through a really bad descent into alcoholism from, say, 85 to 89, he totally bottoms out. Like, the rest of the band, when they're recording Disintegration, says to Robert, it's either him or us. Like, we will not go on tour if this guy's still in the band. We're done. Boris, Porl, everybody, they're just like, this can't continue. Because they had a listening party when they had finished the mixes for Disintegration. And Lowell through this complete tantrum and just was a complete, you know, alcoholic mess. The saddest bottom, you know, hurting people you care about, lashing out, all that shit. You know, he goes through that in the book, uh, and it's pretty rough. You know, and it's rough for him personally to pull all this out there, but that's sort of the dialogue of recovery, and I respect it. Um, and I do, I do understand. I think the function that this that this book serves for Lowell Tolhurst in his life, um, but I think. I do think, and I had said this in a, um, a tiny letter I wrote, I, I do question what the point of that is. I don't know how writing this book is a healthy thing for a person in recovery. Um, it's not like he lays bare everything and, and revisiting this stuff is a dangerous thing. It can be a trigger. So you know, I hope this exercise in this book has been healthy for him and that the promotion around it has continued to be a healthy thing. Um, but, uh, it was a, it was a tough thing. Um, and I, I just, it was difficult for me to understand the impetus, the reasoning, uh, for him to, to feel like this was something he needed to do right now. Um, I mean, he he had rejoined the cure. They did, they did a tour of Australia, which is Chris Perry is, uh, their manager, the guy I was telling you ran fiction records. He's, he's from, he's a Kiwi. He's from New Zealand. He used to be in like a sixties psych band, like terrible. I forget. I think they were called the boys with a Z if I'm not wrong. Um, So because of all of these connections in Australia and New Zealand, The Cure actually did the best of anywhere. They went on this huge tour uh, very early on in 79, I think, in New Zealand and Australia. And they had a massive following there. But it's like logistically and economically impossible to go tour there. So they've only done it a very few times. But one of the times they did it was this reunion um, where they went and played uh, Three Imaginary Boys, uh, 17 Seconds and Faith to audiences um, over there in in Australia and New Zealand. And Lowell Tolhurst, Robert invited him out. You know, Uh, the wounds had healed to a point where he could do that because, you know, Lowell had sued him in 1993 after Wish had come out because in 1986, when he was really starting to lose it uh, and Robert Smith had realized that he was a bona fide pop star, he made everyone in the band employees of a company called Smith Music Limited which is pretty fucked up because he'd known these people for a long time, but, uh, you know, Robert Smith recognized that, um, you know, he's writing all the songs for the most part. He played a lot of the music, even on the records, you know, like Paul Thompson's an amazing guitar hero, you know, Reeves Gabriel, like all these people, guitar magazine type people, you know, um, have been in this band and been associated with this band. They're technically outstanding, but. Uh, Robert Smith played like most of the stuff that you would think Porl would have played. Like the solo on um, From the Edge of the Deep Green Sea on Wish, Robert Smith played that. Um, he's uh, not, I'm gonna say virtuoso, but he's an incredibly uh, organic, uh, great classic rock type guitarist. He has a really natural flow uh, feel for where to go next. He's a massive Hendrix fan as a kid. Uh, and you can hear that. You know you hear it on Never Enough and, and all the great rock songs um, that The Cure have done, which... You know, as time goes on, I'm 41 now. You know, I'm not listening to sinking and and cutting a break for sinking. I'm I'm listening to the stuff that really stands out, um, that still holds up. And when you're talking about holding up at 41, even as a huge fan as a kid, a lot of it's kind of fallen away. Um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not hyperbolic about too too many cure songs, but it's kind of like you know, wine aging, if I still like a Cure song, I'm, that's a fucking really good song, and I'm not going to let that go. Um, so the the deplorable, in my mind, Kyoto song just ended with that DX7 pad. And uh, I think now, at this point, we are going to go into one of my favorites um, in a strange way, which is Charlotte Sometimes. <laughs> Charlotte Sometimes uh, is... It, it, Charlotte sometimes is a strange case because it's based on a children's book by Penelope Farmer. And Robert Smith was not above um, kind of lifting inspiration from sources. You know, uh, Killing an Arab, one of their first early singles, was uh, based on The Stranger by Camus. And uh, he had really been heavily influenced by Mervyn Peake's Gorman Gas Trilogy uh, during the recording and writing of Faith. But... You know, Charlotte sometimes is like, so he doesn't. They do this album, Faith. It is just definitively gray. It's the, it's, the cover is gray. The songs are gray. It's it is, it is the fog, you know, in in music. And uh, Chris Perry, you know, is again the manager is like, I can't. How am I going to market this? You know, primary about all we got here. You know, what am I supposed to base the marketing campaign around this? So he k- kicks their butts back in the studio and he said, give me a fucking single. So they go in there with Mike Hedges, who they were still working with at this time. Mike Hedges is one of the most legendary rock producers in music history. Um, but he sort of was finding his footing a little bit in terms of how the 80s were going to sound on those Cure records on 17 Seconds Faith and the Charlotte Suntime single. So yeah, they, they go in and and Perry's like bang out a single, so he literally just takes a children's book and is like da 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 da, and it's, I mean, it, it's pretty. It's it, it's sort of a precursor to something like "How Beautiful You Are," um, which I love. It's one of my absolute favorite tracks. It's uh, one of the cuts on. It was actually the last single they tried for "Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me,", Kiss Me. Um, and uh, Bob Clearwater did the uh, Bob Clearmountain did the um, uh, mix for that. The same way they had done for "Just Like Heaven," but it was terrible. It totally ruined the song. So the album version of uh, "Of How Beautiful You Are" is the way to go. Or if you want to go to my my uh, or my ancient um, blog, which is now it's just a Blogspot thing, srarchives.blogspot.com. There's a at the very bottom. I did uh, I did like would mixes of wish and kiss me kiss me kiss me because they both irritated me so much at the time and like throughout my cure fandom like kiss me kiss me kiss me has no treble at all it's like i don't know if it's because they were working with midi sequencing so like the like the overhead got collapsed and they couldn't get any really high frequency response or if they were just on a shitload of coke um, which they were <laughs> when you, so when you're like really blown on Coke, like treble really hurts your ears. So you, the, the Coke records tend to have not enough treble. And then like when you're drinking too much or whatever, you, you tend to have like too much bass. There's, there's a weird sort of like uh, trend in, in bands that abuse drugs or have a lot of fun in the studio in terms of how their records sound wish was, was too muddy. Um, and it just sounds like it's being played through a ball of cotton. Kiss Me, um, Kiss Me, Kiss Me didn't have the same problem. There was a lot of clarity to the bass uh, and separation of the instruments again because of the use of things like MIDI. But yeah, the high end is just, it just dies at like 8, 9K. Eight, there's just nothing above that. And that always drove me nuts. But anyway, Charlotte sometimes, Charlotte sometimes is way better live than it is on the record. And there's not a ton of songs that are like that. Where it is, you're consistently better off looking for a live version, any live version. I love the version on concert. Concert was a kind of a response to Susie and the Banshees' torturous nocturne live LP. I think it was a double LP, which they spent weeks uh, producing and mastering. There's an anecdote um, in the Susie and the Banshees uh, auto- autobiography, oral history that you can get, um, where they they spent like like something like nine hours looping some fan screaming for a particular song into the spaces between the song. It was just awful. And Robert Smith was so pissed off with how just, like, laconic and just, just, it was like trudging down a fucking pier in mud or something. Like, just, it took forever for the Banshees to fucking do anything. And they never seemed to be definitively like, yes, done, fucking knocked it out. We're good. That's a wrap. Take, you know, Susie and the Banshees, they were never certain it was all kind of like off the cuff and they just build something out of nothing and there were moments where they did that and it was fucking amazing the banshees had some incredible moments um, where it all coalesced but it was very fucking hard for them you know because of the egos and susie's outsized fame um, to to kind of you know just nail it and because the cure all kind of trickles down from robert smith it was so much easier, and, and yeah, he's just writing pop ditties, you know, there's a lot less pretense to The Cure than there was to Susie and the Banshees, and that's really the reason that it was easier. Um, so here we are, this is In Between Days, it's just started up, Robert's got his, uh, his acoustic going, and this is the single that really started the whole run. Um, it's also Dreams Never End by New Order. <laughs> I mean, it's a two-note bass thing, you know, whatever. But this is the same exact bass line as Dreams Never End from New Order's first album um, after the death of Ian Curtis. Um, But this was was the single where Robert's look had come together, um, and the videos were getting played on MTV. We're starting to get more like late-night MTV-type stuff. You know, Kevin Steele and these other people were coming in and saying, well, we could be a platform for bands that aren't getting on the radio instead of bands that are already on the fucking radio. Um, and that was a really brilliant and important thing MTV did in the mid and especially the late 80s. They were the only place Kids in the Burbs outside of the hipster, you know, underground rock club world who were too young or just by location couldn't get access. MTV was playing The Cure. They were playing weird, fucked up bands. They were playing the Lemonheads. They played their cover of Luca. You know, yeah, the Lemonheads kind of a rap as a jokey band, but... These, they were on Tang, you know. Yeah, well, they were about to get signed to Atlantic. But anyway, MTV was doing pretty decent shit late at night when it didn't matter. And so you could just, when you had the VCR, the VCR, you could set it to go off at a certain clock time. So you, it's not like, you know, I couldn't reasonably be expected to be up at 1.30 in the morning on a Sunday, you know, Monday morning. Um, but I could I could set my VHS to tape it, and it, it was helping. Dave Kendall was a hugely important um, figure. In getting this this English alternative music and American music too, Husker Du got played there They the first place they played Nine Inch Nails, you know first place. They played most of these bands that later crossed over when um, You know radio and and mainstream music started to take a darker turn um, But yeah in, bet- in between days was the beginning of all that and uh, Robert Smith is a pinup and and orange here is sort of a reaction to that it's what he, he shaved off his hair and they were running news bulletins. Kurt Loder had to do a bumper on MTV to say Robert Smith cut his hair off because it was, you know, the entire basis of their reputation was his crazy fucking hair. And, um, he was pissed. So he fucking cut it off. So now they're going into the walk. Yeah. So the walk is one of those, like I was saying, uh, synthetic studio scribbles, um, that they did in 82, 83 to kind of keep grease on the wheels Um, Chris Perry is just like, you know, fuck this. You know, you say you hate the cure. You say you hate all these journalists calling you goth and talking about how you're going to kill yourself. And you're the inheritor of Ian Curtis. If you really think that, then let's actually piss in their face. Let's like destroy the cure myth. Let's like totally fuck with them. Take it all the way. And, you know, that's how they tell it in retrospect. I don't know. I kind of buy it. I think Chris Perry was building Robert Smith up to say the stupidest thing you could do right now is throw away your career in music. The best thing you could do if you're really this upset is use your fame to like exercise that demon. And then, you know, so they come off the back of doing the, the most uncommercial, probably record of all time in pornography. And they do Let's Go to Bed, which is like a mockery of synth pop, a mockery of, you know, everything going on at that time the Human League and, you know, New Order to an extent. At that point, they're, you know, they're getting, they're prepping Blue Monday, which became a kind of fake ass controversy um, because. The Walk uses a synthetic uh, drum machine um, fill, which was, you know, loudly compared to Blue Monday. Neither of them ever heard the other fucking song. <laughs> they were recorded, like, at totally different times. Blue Monday wasn't out when they had recorded The Walk. New Order had no idea what the fuck The Cure were doing. Like, it's just... It's a coincidence, really. Um, unless everyone involved is lying for some reason and, you know, wants to... You know, and that they, and they were, like, working together. <laughs> it's just stupid, but... There is a descending drum fill that, you know, anchors the walk along with this honky uh, keyboard loop, uh, melody, which is pretty cute. Uh, I love the studio version of the walk, actually, the single version of the walk, because the, the synth, I don't know if it's a Jupiter or what synthesizer it was, but they really nailed that. It is so sweet. But there were two really different mastering jobs. If you got the Greatest Hits album, Standing on a Beach or in CD form, Staring at the Sea, um, the walk sounded like shit. It was very, it was like muddy and blown out, and the treble was all off. But if you go back and get um, uh, the compilation Japanese Whispers, which was supposed to be, well, they say it was supposed to only be for the German market. Um, But Japanese Whispers, the version of the walk on that sounds fantastic. It's much more crystalline and clear. And the main reason, well, you don't have to get any of this now because I think it's all on the Join the Dots box set, but the main reason to get um, Japanese Whispers was Lament and Just One Kiss were on it. And those were the two best kind of signature cure-type songs from that uh, hallucinogenic acid period where he was doing the Gloves Blue Sunshine and these these uh, dance pop cure singles. Um, the Gloves Blue Sunshine, I could talk about that probably for a good hour and a half if I wanted to. No reason that record should have been even listenable. And it, it suffers for the fact that Chris Perry wouldn't let Robert Smith sing on it, so they had to get a singer. It was actually, I think she had been going out with Budgie, the drummer from Susie and the Banshees, if I'm not wrong, Jeanette Landre. And so Robert was only contractually allowed to sing two songs on Blue Sunshine, which is fucking sucks because they're all really obviously great Robert Smith songs. And they're almost better than what ended up on the top, but for the fact that he doesn't sing on them. But even then, um, this green city, holy shit! You got to go listen to that. This green city on blue sunshine and the uh, the the advanced single, like an animal, which is essentially the a demo for in between days. Um, these there's just great. There's nothing like it. Nothing. It's the only psychedelic synth record ever. It's the only piece of synth pop that's psychedelic that I could really point to and say like it fits both those categories to a t. And yeah, it's out there. I mean, Christ, it's on Spotify. It's not like it's obscure in um, any way. In 1990, bizarrely, just I don't know why this happened, uh, they released a blue vinyl version of it. This is when I was 15 in disintegration and never enough were like reigning the world um and i got that and I, I loved it was so fucking cool this translucent blue colored vinyl was like not a thing in 1990 at fucking all and yet they did this for blue sunshine um and the cure had always done that and this since we're listening to the laconic night like this right now which is kind of a uh, it just bores my fucking ass off me I, I just i've never liked this song um the cure loved music fans Robert Smith remembered what it was like being a music fan. He, he never forgot that. And it's sort of like the old salesman joke, you know, you don't sell five guys one car, you sell one guy five cars. The Cure were masters of that, just the way like Bjork was later. They released the home video after home video, you know, different singles with different B-sides, uh, the white version of the Just Like Heaven 45 with Snow and Summer on it. Um, they, they had a special repackaged version of Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me with an orange, I think it was a 10-inch, clear orange 10-inch with all the B-sides from the Kiss Me singles on there. Like, you know, bizarre songs um, that, that really didn't do it, like uh, Sugar Girl. I think is one of the, that's that's the weirdest nothing ephemeral song like in their whole discography. But Breathe is on there, like like really heavy. Chain of Flowers, like such a fucking great song, but really long, you know, didn't fit on Kiss Me. They had way too much stuff to fit in for that double album. Uh, And then this is also the period where they did To the Sky, which was a fucking really cool song that never got released that ended up on a Fiction Records promo CD. But uh, if you Google up To the Sky, uh, I think it did. I'm not sure which version of it. There were a couple of edits of it. Ended up on the box set. I think it did end up on the Join the Dots box set. But yeah, To the Sky. This is all done in 1986, 1987 in Miraval, France, during the Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me sessions, which immediately followed this tour that we're watching here within Orange. Um, And I mean, they had something like 26 songs that were all good. Not like demos that didn't get finished. Like 26 complete, decent, totally viable, commercially viable songs. Like Hey You and, and just so much stuff. So, I mean, that was a titanic period of creativity despite uh, the problems that Lowell was having for Robert and the rest of the band. And a lot of it was coming from Boris and porl now feeling like, Porl Thompson feeling um, that he was part of the band. Por- porl has uh, um, recently transition prefers to be called Pearl Thompson, um, and has, you know, rationalized, recodified his gender assignment. Um, but at the time in the eighties, he was working as Pearl Thompson and, uh, and he was even starting to contribute more than being kind of like a, a guitar God, which was always his kind of role. Um, and so everybody was just kind of firing on all cylinders. Roger O'Donnell's joined the band, you know, virtuosic keyboard player. I, I mean even I don't know how to rank a pianist if it's a concert level or whatever, but I mean he he anchored the live presence of the cure from eighty six on. I mean, he he just got everything right and he knew how to do it like it was so easy for him. It was like a joke. I mean, he just, you know, plug the patch in, but he understood the mechanics of of keyboards and synthesizers so well. And, it, and the cure were so much more reliant on that than they realized. He saved them so much ass ache. I mean it, it just it's 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 like the thing that's not there, Roger O'Donnell. You know, it's like you don't recognize how much he made this thing what it was. Um, and I, because Boris is very obviously, you know, a part of what made it what it was. If you revere and, and remember this period of The Cure, so a night like this is just finished. And this right now is for me, probably the signature moment of the Inorge film, which is a performance of the song Push. Now, Push uh, is like almost Bruce Springsteen straight ahead rock, <laughs> like it is. That is the most straight-ahead rock guitar song Robert Smith ever let out, um, to my mind, and it's a it's a bit of a show-off thing for Boris because there's all these drum rolls, very like Led Zeppelin y drum rolls and and thrusts of like crash snare crash and all that, and uh, and you know Simon's up for any of that because he's like you know Simon's like got a, still got a little bit of the punk rock chip on his shoulder he very much image wise and in terms of his position was cast in the shadow of like Sid Vicious like any bassist in 1980 You know, he was wearing a black leather jacket and kind of like sneering at everybody. And I'm sure he looks back at it and he's like, what the fuck? That is so embarrassing. But he's a kid. I mean, they're like 18, 19. You know, when they started this band and when they got signed, they were literally fucking teenagers. So even when you're talking about this huge concert in France, the In Orange Video we're watching, and you're talking, you know, probably 10,000 people. I think it held something like that, eight, ten thousand. 10,000. They were playing festivals to 30, 40,000 people. They played in Athens with the Clash and Culture Club. Um, just massive festivals. And they were anchoring their own tours in big arenas by this point. This is when it really took off. So, you know, that's all happening. They're still like 25, 26 years old. They only turned 30. I think Robert Smith turned 30 when they were finishing Disintegration. And that's that's insane. The guy wrote Boys Don't Cry when he was, like, 17 years old. More to think about, you know? More to think about in terms of people overlooking The Cure and thinking The Cure are just, you know, some lipstick and some image and some kind of dinky-dink pop songs. This stuff's still fucking hanging around, man. You know, I think people need to... Every time The Cure goes away or people start getting cutesy with The Cure, that's when I start to be like, no, you're fucking... It's like, it's, just, it's like dismissing The Who, the Cure were fucking enormous. And, and a huge number of the, the songs in this discography have endured. And for super fans like me, Push is definitely one of them. So um, I don't know why that is. I wonder if it's because it's, it, it's relatively so bold compared to the rest of the catalog. It's so direct. And it's Robert Smith saying, yeah, I can do rock music. I don't feel the need to do it very often, but when I want to do it, I can bang that shit out. Um, it's hard to say, um, but it, it's a very slight song. It's just like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, you know, it's, and it's done. Um, but they, it's, it's a song that let them flex this muscle, which is that they were fucking incredible live and they came from the, you know, the Bowie, whatever, who 70s arena Zeppelin understanding of like, you just, you're fucking not coming off that stage. You are giving the fans their money's worth. And when you think about, like, the drug abuse and shit and, you know, pervasive alcohol use, not like they're all drunks or something, but they love a a drink. Um, And that doesn't stop them. They go out there and they fucking burn it down every night. You, If you go back and there's just hundreds and hundreds of Cure bootlegs, you're going to be hard-pressed to find more than, like, 10 bootlegs where they're off in, like, 20 fucking years of, like pre-loop, pre-tape performances where they're totally fucking on their own. There's nothing. There's no click track. This is just fucking five guys on stage banging it out together. Monitors, just like in a club. There's nothing holding this together but the people on stage. And they were unfucking believably good during this period. They were even good with Lowell, but it was just, they had to be very basic because he wasn't a good, wasn't a great drummer. I mean, he could keep time. But he wasn't, you know, he he could he wasn't floored. He wasn't doing flourishes and rolls and, you know, off tempo cuts and this and that like Boris could. And this Boris period, that's why people keep coming back to it, because it's it's just like classic rock, but it's you know The Cure. It's it's got some emotion to it. It's got these these beautiful chorused, you know, guitar drops and whatever, and the Fender six bass that they use to get that sound. Um, that is like the skeleton key of the Cure sound. I talked about the, how the Elisus MIDI Verb 2 is the skeleton key for Kevin Shields and My Bloody Valentine. Well, the Fender Bass 6 is the skeleton key for the Cure. I mean, that's how, in the studio anyway, um, he got a lot of the sounds that uh, that made the Cure's name. So, yeah, now we're starting 100 years. Oh, boy. This is like six and a half minutes of fucking bloodletting, this one. I need a drink. Yeah, so when I was a kid, you could get The Cure in the mall. You couldn't get indie stuff in the mall yet. You know, you couldn't get uh, the bands that I, you know, you just look at the record cover and buy it, that whole thing. You couldn't even do that until I want to say maybe 88. I mean, because you didn't have indies that could get distribution. There were no distributors servicing, you know, national suburban chains. It was just big city stuff. And so, you know, I, prior to this point, we'd have to go to Newbury Comics, who were doing their own, their own like, book, their own distribution, essentially, in their own chain for a lot of the stuff in Boston. You know, you'd have to go in town. And we didn't even have fucking... We didn't even know anybody with a driver's license yet to go in and get, like, punk shit, and hardcore seven inches, and whatever. And we were, like, 45 minutes away from Boston, which is, you know, that's fucking boonies, you know? It's one thing to be 45 minutes away from New York. Um, but, you know, The Cure were... In the shops. I could go to fucking strawberries, you know, or whatever. That that was the sort of mid ground chain that made it out to the suburbs when I was a kid. And I could get the top. Cause they were Sire distributed that in America. And um You know, I think the first five CDs I bought were Robert Plant's Now and Zen with Tall Cool One on it. Uh because I was like a fucking huge Zeppelin fan when I was a kid. I was a drummer, so you know, if I'm playing drums and I'm trying to learn from older kids who know how to play drums, the first thing they're telling me is John Bonham's God. You know, so I was trying to play rock and roll and Black Dog and all stuff in The Ocean uh, when I was a kid. And so I, yeah, I had now in Zen uh, Disintegration, and oh God, I had Living Colors, Vivid Cult Personality. Yeah, because I for, first of all, I started buying CDs before I had a CD player. I was still in the Columbia tape club so i was getting tapes um from columbia house um so i had like peter gabriel's security was a really important record uh, sorry tape uh that i got from there because i had so and so was one of the first like sort of decent records that wasn't like you know just pure radio pop even though it was (laughs) with the sledgehammer was a huge hit um but like that voice again in red rain were my favorite songs on that so i wasn't like necessarily that stoked on that for the radio singles and like in excess his kick was fucking everywhere. They had like five top 10 singles off that in America. It was nuts. Um, and I had a friend from England who was here, uh, who had moved here uh, a couple years before that. And he had like weird shit, like the art of noise. I remember he had, um, who's afraid. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I've, i might, this is when my taste was starting to develop of like, what do I want to find? Like, what do I want to hear? What do I want to hear? You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I was buying CDs before I had a CD player because I knew it was coming. I only had so much money I could save up. So like every time I'd mow a lawn, I'd go get a CD. Uh, and one of the ones I got was the top. And uh, so my only exposure to the cure was like, I had a tape of Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me from uh, one of my friend's older sisters. And I had, um, I you know, I would heard the singles. I had standing on, I would gotten standing on a beach um, at a, Music store in the Cordage, at Cordage Park in Plymouth, holy shit, they had a little music stand store in there, pop-up store that had cassettes, and they had the, uh, Standing on a Beach cassette, so I had had the, you know, those singles and whatever, and I was burning those tapes in, and I got disintegration, and it's like, yep, everything's making sense, because the only single on the top was the Caterpillar, which, when you're coming on the back of the Love Cats, doesn't sound that weird, you know, whatever, there's nothing else from the top on Standing on a Beach, so... When I, you know, with the experience of Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Disintegration in the singles tape, the top was really shocking. Um, and the cover is just, like, pure acid. It's just, like, I am on drugs, Mom, you know? I mean, it's, like, melting rainbow or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I fucking loved Shake, Dog, Shake. Because, again, I was learning to play drums, so I was just, like, yeah, you know, like, really loud arena drums and all that. Loved it. Um, and I love the, the title track, too, which is this really dolorous weird ambient kind of sleepy druggy uh thing which was typical of cure records they would always have a song the last song in the album or whatever be the title track they had 17 seconds which was again dun, dun, like just dead slow just droning ambient guitar and faith which is just like god <laughs> it's almost—it's almost like comical how morbid and and funereal faith is. But it, it's also fucked up because Lowell's mother was dying at that time, and there was real world shit happening that was inspiring this. It's not a pose, you know. It's not like Robert Smith was writing Faith because he's like, oh, I, I wish I was a knight in medieval England fighting for Henry the Seventh or whatever. You know, I mean, it, it's not that kind of like. Lucy Worsley, like fucking, you know, mythic English King Arthur, Arthurian bullshit. There was real shit going on. You know, he's a little kid. He's like 21, 20 when he's writing Faith. And just, you know, people are getting sick and losing jobs. It's the early 80s. England was a fucking mess still economically. Um, It's not coming from nothing. It's not fantasy bullshit. As much as the Gorman gas trilogy did inspire aspects of it. You know, the song Faith, Drowning Man is, you can sort of give that some shit. You can give him some stick for Drowning Man because it is such a fucking cop of Joy Division's, you know, kit. Um, and, it, and the Gorman gas piece is just laid on so heavy. Uh, but Faith in particular, I think, it is defensible and should be defended as a very important um, and legitimate piece of maudlin anthemic, you know, um, mid-tempo meditation in the Cures canon, which is full of that sort of song. Um, and they famously brought this out during the Tiananmen Square, uh, crisis in China. They dedicated a, a celebrated by fans anyway, live version of this. Um, I think it was in Rome and it, it's like 12 minutes long or something. It's mental. Um, Faith, during the disintegration, the prayer tour, the disintegration tour in 1989, Faith took on a totally different meaning for the band and for him. And it was just interminable. It would go on for 10, 12 minutes. And like me, when I'm, I was a fan, I'm like 14, 15. We would seek out every bootleg we could. I mean, we had whole 90-minute tapes that were just different live versions of Faith. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, we're still in orange here, and we're coming into Robert Smith's guitar solo, sixteenth note, chugga chugga, uh, and he does this bizarrely before a forest, which was the Cure's first hit. A forest was a pretty massive hit in England. I think it went to number nine or eight. I can't. I get the numbers mixed up because I just I don't have any of the stuff in front of me. I'm literally just rambling. I have no idea what the fuck I've even said so far. But a forest was their first hit. So Chris Perry was pissed because he felt like killing an Arab, 10, 15 Saturday Night, Boys Don't Cry. He felt like they'd already had a bunch of fucking singles right out the gate, and they just didn't do shit. And he blamed the failure of Boys Don't Cry on Polydor, the quote he had in uh, 10 Imaginary Years. He said they stitched him up. So, you know, he was was just feeling like, what's it going to take? And then there's the question of, um, you know, Robert Smith says, we played a show with Wire. We played a show with Joy Division. They did. They, I think they played, I don't know if it was the Hope and Anchor, where they played with Joy Division, but they played with Joy Division and they played with Wire in 1979. And Robert Smith is very honest about this. He's like, that changed everything for me. Everything. You know, playing with the Banshees changed some stuff, opened them up to some stuff, but seeing how kind of like taut and minimal, it was kind of a completely lazy adjective to throw at Wire, minimal, but um they were, and they, they were just extremely arty and and kind of... They weren't, like, wankery. Like, Gang of Four was a little bit of a wank band. They were a little bit too posy and full of shit. Wire didn't have that, necessarily, aspect. They were a little more dead-eyed and had a more of a thousand-yard stare to them. When you see them perform stuff like Heartbeat live or from the nursery, you know, Wire was a very, very strange thing. Um, I think of Wire... Uh, it's a very, sounds like a Steve Albini kind of thing to say, but I think of wire almost like the Jesus lizard. Like they were just sort of weirdly dead to the audience and dead to the entire process of performing live and being trapped in this, this you know, rote, recycled um, mode of behavior of being in a band. Like they just want to make music, but then they got to go play live and playing live takes on this whole other artifice that's, so predictable and stupid and uh, I don't know why are is just a weird blank spot kind of nailed to the, the history of pop and rock music. I still love them. I still think their first four records are just fucking amazing, just untouchable. And there's compilations of even outtakes from that period that are just as good, like behind the curtain and, um, Oh, what the hell's the other one called with the X on the cover? Uh, it has that, amazing version of our swimmer, the the fast version of our swimmer is on that. Turns and strokes. Um, So anyway, playing with Wire and playing with Joy Division changed Robert Smith's whole thing. And then when they come back around, you know, I wrote about this on uh, Tumblr, one week, one band, um, for Henrik, who's so awesome, Janish, and you should be keeping up with one week, one band. It's just, there's been like reams and reams of great, dedicated, you know, entries from really good writers. Um, and I did The Cure. And when I was doing The Cure, I said, I did this whole thing about how, you know, Chris Perry did the marketing and the art direction for Three Imaginary Boys, The Cure's debut record. And the band fucking hated it because they got their asses kicked in the press. Uh, Paul Morley, who's a, very famous British rock writer from this period. He's one of the guys who sold Joy Division. And his whole life has been sort of taken over by the things he wrote about and continues to write about Joy Division. Um he recently did a Bowie book that has not gotten a great reception. Um, and he did a very, very fucking weird record uh, uh sorry, weird book uh in the 80s that's just the strangest fucking thing about Kylie Minogue and I can't even remember what it's called right now, but I have it. And it's it's just almost unreadable. But <clears throat> Morley's, one of his very famous early reviews was an absolute savaging of the Cure's debut album, Three Imaginary Boys, where he just destroys their phony, imageless image, you know, of the, the just dumbheaded dipshit stupidity. Of having a lamp, a vacuum, and a refrigerator on the cover to represent your band, but without showing your band, like Chris Perry is kind of a monthed fucking bogan. Like he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. If this is like his definition of something clever to do with your album cover. And and like they didn't have song titles, they just had pictures that alluded to the song title. Like it is the most junior varsity conceptualism. You, I mean, it's pathetic. <laughs> There's no other word for it. And Morley tore their ass out. And he was totally fucking justified in doing it. But Robert Smith was like a kid. You know, he's like 18. It's his first album. And he knew he didn't have control of these things. And he didn't like that. But he had to go along with it because he got a fucking record contract. And he was getting a weekly paycheck. He's getting a stipend. And he was starting to do and get to do the things he would always dreamed about. And they all were. And it was his first real fucking roadblock. And uh, man, it was a big one. I mean, they just got crushed. And they and Morley wasn't the only one to be like, "What the fuck is this?" You know, London toss. And so the reaction to that was this: a forest. And you look at the cover of Seventeen Seconds. It's a fucking blur. There isn't a goddamn thing you can see. And this is when Robert started to establish himself and and uh, demand you know consideration for a lot of these things. And um, a forest is the first song that incorporates the kind of four on the floor, dis- almost disco-y kind of umpa umpa, of the early stuff like Fire in Cairo and and even ten fifteen on a Saturday night, which is a little more of like a pub rock song, but like Fire in Cairo and jumping someone else's train and killing an Arab have a kind of like a, a, a turned up kind of almost like ska kind of upbeat jump to them it's it's very much not like the jam the jam is a downbeat kind of a rock thing but you know when you listen to the band that the clash joe Strummer was in before the clash uh the 101ers you know and you listen to even elvis costello who robert smith has admitted you know time and again that my aim is true was a massive influence on him because of the classic you know songwriting on it and smith was a huge beatles fan as a kid um that elvis costello record really spoke to him um I think he still considers that one of his favorite records that that debut uh, with Huey and Lewis and the News' is band Clover backing up Elvis Costello. But anyway, A Forest is where he breaks with all that. He breaks with kind of like childish things and he decides he's going to go off in this totally different direction and darken it. The thing that's weird about it is he wasn't, he wasn't the only one doing it. When they're doing A Forest, uh, Gary Newman's already kind of coming together, the human league are out there, um, the synth, dark, synthy, gothy, new wave thing, is coming together pretty good. And, you know, 17 seconds could have been a pivot, where the cure went in that direction, and became a completely disposable, dance pop band. You can hear it all over the record. You know, they're, Hedges' production, it's it's like uh, they're like in a vacuum. The, if you listen to the drums on the title track, seventeen seconds, it's like negative space. It like sucks the air out of your ears, and there's almost nothing like that um, that I know of. I don't know if I don't know if it's because he did something with the phasing on it, but it's really strange. Um, and so faith, the demos for faith. And the actual, you know, obviously completed record itself is in a way you can look at Faith as like this. Re- it's like it, he just takes the other road. He could have gone and and gone from a forest into Charlotte sometimes. That's what Perry wanted him to do. You know, that's why he took him by the collar and said, go give me a fucking single after Faith. Because he was supposed to go from a forest to something like Charlotte sometimes. And instead he went into the holy hour. All Cats Are Gray, The Funeral Party, The Drowning Man, Faith. I mean, that fucking record is brutal. I mean, brutal in its unyielding, um, not misery and rage like pornography, but it's just, it's so dead. It's just deadened and stone and all those, whatever words come to mind. I mean, you look at the cover and it's like, yeah, that's what this sounds like forever. But, you know, the records also, the other thing is too, people think of an album now, they think it has like fucking 28 songs and it's an hour and a half long. An album used to be eight to ten songs. Eight songs, okay, you know, could have been a little longer. Ten songs is an album. That's the anecdote. You know, any producer will stand by that. Ten songs is an album. Don't get fancy. The Cure, you know, traditionally, they do four songs a side. And then later, you know, they started doing five with the top and head on the door. And then yeah, everybody started doing double albums. <laughs> so the Prince did one, Husker Du had done one, and uh, Robert wanted to do his own, and that was uh, "Kiss Me." So a forest has just ended, and now we're going to go into "Sinking." "Sinking" might be my least favorite Cure song. I'm not sure if it's my absolute least favorite, but it is way down on the list. Um, it's I call it. I j- the joke I make is I call it a Queen song. Um, it is just very strangely direct and theatrical in a way that I just don't feel that any of the other Cure songs, even the big ballads, like even like One More Time or A Thousand Hours, like the really hoary piano, um, daydream, hysteria, you know, (laughs) anthems on Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. Sinking just has a, just a plodding kind of if it was a dirge, I could see it, but it's just kind of flat and and looping and loping and uh, very strange. But I, I will say this. The Head on the Door, uh, when I finally got it, I think it was Halloween of 1989 when I got it, it was around about then. And so the head on the door, you know, like anybody, everybody's memory of things is different. It's when you hear the record and when you spend the time with the record and when the record is a, an escape for you or something you can escape into. And, and, um, head on the door for me, uh, sounds like fall in new England. Um, you know, where disintegration sounds like the dead of winter. Right. Uh, and so does my bloody Valentine's loveless for me. Those were records that I just lived with in the Cocteau twins Heaven or Las Vegas. Um, that that those early '90s winters were like those three records like on loop, but um, yeah, head on the door. I I got I think I got it on tape from Columbia House. Um, I was still big into tapes and because that's what was portable, you know, you have your Walkman, um, and uh, they didn't have CD discmans really then. But yeah, so thinking. A lot of the songs change, you know, because you keep listening to them over and over again. Are they your favorite songs? Like Push, right? I've, I listen to Push all the time. I still was throwing it on mixtapes forever. I You know, and I would make a mixtape of, like, old favorites to drive around with. You know, Push would probably still end up on there. But the songs that I didn't listen to and I didn't keep with me, like Kyoto Song, like Sinking, um... I'm trying to think of the other, uh, even six different ways, which I like, but I didn't, I, it's not like a huge favorite, particularly though, night like this, which I never liked too much. Um, when I hear those now, I can still almost get a glimmer of that kind of, you know, fall chill, the crisp kind of night air and dead leaves rattling around. Um, you know, they're all sort of, um, just face, you know, direct normative nostalgia, right? Um, and so, because I haven't like because I didn't like it very much, and I didn't go back to it much, um, I can still kind of get a, a flavor of that, a sense of of that feeling when I hear this song. Um, and I remember too, we used to my Cure cover band. We used to like go home from school and watch this movie in Orange, and um, like right up to about this point, you're pretty amped because you've gone through like a lot of fast, upbeat songs. The only real like ballad is Kyoto song up to this point. And you've had a hundred years and Forest with a guitar solo. And then this comes on and you're just like, you sink into the fucking couch. And this is pretty much when we would pull out uh, some weed and uh, and smoke a bowl. And so listening to singing, watching this again, I don't know the last time I watched this. I'm actually watching my VHS of it. I'll send, I'll tweet out a picture of it. Um, this is when we would really like sink into the couch and just be like, dude, dude, check out the lights, dude. Like if you're watching the synced, this is the real like Pink Floyd light show moment. I mean, it, there was in Forest or whatever, but now you're dealing with like a slow anthem for the first time in like an hour. Um... And it just starts, you really start to nod off a bit at this point. Um, and the rest of this really is kind of a, it's all the old stuff. They, they've always had this thing of the encores and the, and the later stuff being, you know, the early singles and, and the title track, Three Imaginary Boys, which is still a great, you know, kind of rock anthem type song that has a whole different feel to it live. I like it both ways. I like the old studio, dry studio version uh, for some of the kind of guitar textures that they had in that that old shitty guitar of his. Um, he had this, uh, he had a Woolworths top 20 guitar, piece of shit and a little combo amp. And he did a lot of the stuff on Three Imaginary Boys with that. And then Chris Perry like gave him a dressing down about how fucking horrible it looked and sounded or whatever. and made him get rid of it and he got him a Jazzmaster. So before anybody made that cool, Elvis Costello made it cool. Not Kurt Cobain. Elvis Costello made the Jazzmaster cool again, or maybe cool at all, because it was kind of a surf guitar until then, because the soapbox the soap bar, rather, the soap bar pickups in that thing, they feed back like fucking crazy, which gives you a cool tone, but it's very difficult um, to control uh, the feedback, the EMI that happens when you're near uh, magnets or amps or whatever. So anyway, Robert Smith got the, the idea. You know, he wanted a, a cream um, jazz master because Elvis Costello had played one. And what he did is he, he had had a the, the centerpiece between the two soap bars. He had a, a, luther, a luthier uh, fucking cut a hole in it, and he put the the bridge pickup from the Top Twenty in the Jazzmaster. So if you see footage, I think he still plays it in the In Orange video. I didn't even bother to look, but if you see footage of the Cure or like the video for um, Play for Today back in the early '80s, he's still playing a Jazzmaster with a fucking Woolworths Top Twenty pickup in the middle, and he had like a switch uh, setting that would that would kick it in because he he likes really pop like one two K. Uh, boxy mid-range, that kind of mid-range where, like, if you put your hands over your ears, those frequencies, those are great guitar frequencies, and they're really hard to get um, out of uh, out of a lot of electric guitars, really. And so a lot of, like, crappy old microphone-style pickups, like in Japanese guitars, um, even pieces of crap like Harmony guitars, they, they have these microphone coil pickups that get that really high, powerful mid-range where, like, if you're doing the kind of sliding and descending um, guitar leads that The Cure does, you you need that to really cut through the the thickness of the bass, so he always relied on that. So here's the most annoying part of the, the movie where Robert Smith is dancing around on stage in his Reeboks to close to me playing with the microphone cable and laughing about how fucking shit stupid this is all going. The cameraman's bumping into him. It's a complete joke. They did do some pickups for this movie, by the way. They went back, or it was either the day before or the day after. They shot without an audience to get close-ups and stuff. So this isn't like a true, real, complete live document. There are pickups all over the place on this that were done um, without an audience present. But this here is about as... uh, live and not comped, uh, performance as there is on this thing. And it's also probably the most annoying close to me always sucks live. It is one of their most untranslatable songs, the specific production of this song, uh, particularly the, the horn single mix, which is so fucking great, but even the kind of weird, claustrophobically insanely muted, um, like it's literally sounds like you're under the covers, the album version of close to me on head on the door. Um, those are the only versions of it I can listen to. And I like them a lot. And I forget how much I like them because I fucking hate the live version. I hate this song live. This and Why Can't I Be You are both inexplicably awful in concert every time out. And this is really no different. <laughs> it's just kind of like dashed off. It, it doesn't hit. It never hits. It Whatever the swing and kind of like tempo um, jumps of the, the album and single version of Close to Me are... And they're there, you know, they just, it never translates live. And I think it's also because the keyboards are so dinky and and the melodies generally in this are just kind of like, uh, you know, when I did that podcast with Simon Reynolds uh, a few weeks ago, he said his main complaint was that a lot of the Cure stuff was slight. This is a very slight song. um, And it's only reinforced how slight it is when it fails live. But check out the check out the album versions and, and check out the album version and the single version. They're both independently interesting um, cuts. And um, not not that I'm like I said that whole keeping them alive thing. They don't you know they don't I don't have any real you know enduring affinity for the song in any way. Um, but yeah, here's another one. Let's go to bed coming up here, which just you know, New Order never made the mistake of trying to translate their electronic songs into analog songs and play them live as a you know four or five piece band with real instruments they just plug that shit in on stage and sang along to it and let's go to bed is one that really needs that treatment or just don't play it the walk works the walk works because like you know it's just the keyboard and boris can play the drums and Andy anderson played the drums great Again, get the concert, download, oh, sorry, download or find the, the Cure in Concert, the 1984 um, live album. It, it's Andy Anderson's playing on that and the production on it, unbelievable. And In Orange is good too, even if you just take the audio, it's good. But it suffers for kind of um, the synthetic kind of gated quality of the snare. And this carried through to the tour after this, the Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me tour um, in 87, 88 they they capitalized on the fact that they had a great live band here. They played, like, 70-plus shows in each of the years they had albums out here. Uh, I think uh, 85, 87, 84, 85, even with Andy Anderson. So 84, 85, 87, and, and 89, they played, like, 70-plus shows every year. And these are huge fucking stadium shows. That's a lot of stadium shows. That's not, like, club dates. Um, and they they totally went off with a fucking bang for a wish where they played 111 dates in 92 and released two different live albums and a movie show. And then there was an alternate live album called Paris of more like spotter fan songs show was, I mean, it is the most bloated insane thing. It's, it's amazing. It's great. But like they took a British film crew with them on tour and filmed in pal format. So it had to be, like, transcoded to NTSC, and this is before digital. Like, it was such a fucking absolute circus show. It was a a madhouse. And he was, Robert Smith was really fucked up, and so was Simon. Something was wrong with Simon. I don't want to get into any of that crap. Because, again, I mean, they don't want to air their dirty laundry. I don't want to throw it at them. You know what I mean? But Lowell was out of the band when they did the Wish Tour and did show and all that. But things weren't any better (laughs) like robert smith had put on a ton of weight i mean he always had problems with weight fluctuating because he loves a drink and you know he just whatever that's how he's built right that's his makeup right but um by the time of wish he was really in a rough way i mean there's plenty of anecdotes you know there's plenty of people out there who will tell you they did coke with robert smith backstage on the wish tour billy corgan said he stuck his tongue in his mouth and threw up on his shoes i don't want to hear this stuff you know i like the guy i don't i don't think he's a bad person i don't think he's done bad things He's pretty brilliant, you know, and he's pretty upfront about the position he's in. Whenever he's, wherever he is in his career, he's been honest about the position he's been in. You can go look at an interview with him at any time. He's never full of shit. He's never selling anything. Somebody asks him a tough question, he answers it. You know, there was some kid who got up in his face about uh, CD prices in South America, something like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. And he just was like, look, you know, that's the record company. It's not me. I don't set CD prices. I'm not here to, you know, have a... This isn't a sales conference. You don't like it? Fucking tape it. You know, he didn't say that. But, you know, what I mean, that's kind of his attitude. And he's always had really kind of bright things to say, sensible things to say. In the 80s, when this when this was going on in 86, 87, there was... He was getting tons of airtime, you know, because they were getting hit singles. And when Just Like Heaven came out, um, they became a massive band pretty quickly. And in the interviews around that time, he's like, you know, all the interviewers are asking kind of fawning questions like, why don't you think you're in the charts? Why is it so hard for you to get attention? And he said some really brilliant stuff. He'd be like, look, people aren't, people aren't going to be aware that there's a choice available to them if you don't tell them what the options are. Meaning if you don't play my shit on the radio, no one's going to know that it's even there for them as a choice, as a type of music to listen to besides Bon Jovi. And he would he would call out other bands. He was on the cover of the NME, I think it was, of Not Melody Maker with Jay Maskus after Dinosaur Jr. did kind of a joke cover of Just Like Heaven because Jay Maskus realized he'd ripped it off with Freak Scene. Um, and you know, Robert Smith embraced that. And a bunch of us, when we went to see them on the Prayer Tour '89, and uh, I didn't go, sorry. When a bunch of my friends went, they swore that Pearl Thompson turned up the distortion when they played Just Like Heaven at Great Woods in Boston as like a tribute to Dinosaur Jr. having done this insane overdriven version of Just Like Heaven as a single. And he did, you know, he shared his rep. He'd get interviews and they'd be like, why do you think, you know, uh, fucking George Michael's at number one? Why do you think, you know, this, that? And he'd say, I really wish it was different. I wish it was us, the Cocteau Twins at number one, Echo and the Bunny Men at number three, and us right in at number four or something. And he would do it in ways that were you know, uh, conciliatory and and flattering to other bands. And um, I always admired that about him because he he just was never full of shit. And he, I mean, that was important considering how big the band was. But um, yeah, like I said, you get a real weird flavor of um, the kind of shadow he cast over the rest of the band, though. And then none of that stuff ever came out. And in a a kind of a cold-hearted professional way, you can kind of say that's to their credit. You know, managing the myth, right? It's part of the deal, man. Bowie did it. And uh, there's no question he was probably Robert Smith's biggest fucking hero. Um, he never stopped, you know, uh, laying praise and, and inspiration at the feet of Bowie. He performed at his, at his uh, 50th, uh, 50th birthday party. He did uh, quicksand with him. And he didn't wear any makeup, which I thought was fucking cool as hell. Or maybe he did on stage, but he didn't backstage. I can't remember. It always shocks me. Uh, Robert Smith looks so much better without makeup and he has looked better without makeup since like 92, but, um, he still hangs on his character thing and he says it's a character and he needs you know, it's how he performs on stage. He's not a natural performer and I don't know. I never bought any of that bullshit. I I know. I don't understand it. I I almost wonder if he just doesn't want people to know what he looks like because he's been married to the same woman since he was like, you know, 16. (laughs) Um, if it is in some sense of like trying to pretend that there's a difference between the musician and the real person. I don't really know. Particularly since he's been so much more forthcoming and honest in recent interviews and stuff. Alright, now we're getting into the uh this is the tail end of the first encore. This is three imaginary boys. <clears throat> Which again, holds up live. It's a pretty good live. Almost never uh never let him down. Never let the boys down. But, um, so yeah, I did this interview with Lowell. Um, and, uh, like I said, he was just kind of looping through answers and, uh, and it was unfortunate. I, I just, I almost wish that we'd had that conversation and then recorded a conversation because I felt like he, I had kind of won him over a little bit, but, um, yeah, it's tough. It's a tough situation, uh, for him because as I said, he was made an employee like everyone else was in 86. And so the royalty structure changed and, um, his, you know, his presence on the early records as a co-founder and his royalty structure and all that stuff is very different on the early records. And then it gets changed. I mean, if the guy goes out and tells a bunch of stories about Robert Smith, you know, being fucked up and doing drugs and shit, he's going to cut him out. He's going to be fucked. You know, he can't push that button. Um, and he can't, he can't give away those stories. Part of that is respect, you know, for Robert Smith, his friend, and everything they've been through. Part of that is, um, you know, being a recovered alcoholic, recovered substance abuser, you know, doing the work, doing the work of recovery, respect for other people. There's not a single negative comment in that book of his, Cured Tale of Two Imagine Boys, not a single negative comment in the entire thing about anyone. I mean anyone. And that tells you everything right there. He doesn't take... excuse me. He doesn't take shots at anybody. Um, and that's fine. That's where he is, you know? And I, there is, there is a lot of plenty of, you know, like worthwhile, uh, historical, uh, memories. And it's, it's a decent memoir. It's a quick read. It's really quick. And I I would encourage anybody to get it as an ebook or whatever. One thing I just noticed though, um, and the credits for orange, the sound was done by Dave Allen. Uh, David Allen, who did um, all the Cures, like the the late 80s big stuff and uh, the gated drums and all that. I didn't know he did the sound for this live record. That is interesting, probably only to me. But uh, yeah, no, I I mentioned that because um, Roger O'Donnell, the keyboardist I was praising earlier for his kind of like being the glue aspect of particularly the live Cure experience. O'Donnell published this incredible document of the disintegration uh, recording sessions online. As a kind of, I don't know, was a gift to fans or whatever. But I'll tell you, I, this guy, he's not worried about it at all. I mean, there is lots of hilarious, fun dirt um, in his diary, and um, one of the one of the comments he makes is that he he was so, I think he was really annoyed with Dave <laughs> David Allen, Dave Allen, because um, he spent like he said he spent like four hours getting a particular set of hits from Boris, and then sequencing that like putting them in as samples into a sequencer so that it would be the exact same hit every time. And Roger was like, why the fuck are you doing like, why does it have to be the same sample triggering every time? Now this is standard practice now. I mean, it's been this way for years and years and years, back in the 90s when I was in bands and recording, people, you'd have a trigger sample, right? You'd, so if you have a bum hit or you're going through and somebody mishits the snare, you just drop and go to the, the trigger. You have a sample of a good snare hit on that kit by that drummer. And anytime there's an imperfection, you just fucking slam that shit in. And, you know, I, <laughs> I remember a friend of mine who was in an indie band in Boston, like around the turn of the century here, around the early 2000s, the Strokes era, the Interpol era. They did a record, in I think Q Division in Boston, and um, <clears throat> their drummer was okay. He was a little bit sloppy, and so <laughs> they built, you know, they built the kit around samples, around triggers, of other ki- of, of another kit, and it turned out it was the fucking kit from Aerosmith. <laughs> they still had it on on tape on Adat or something. So this little indie record ended up having the, all the drums were samples of Aerosmith drums. Uh, you'll never find it anyway, but. That um, that whole story and all of the stories that Roger tells, I hope it's still on his website if you Google it, Roger O'Donnell's tour uh, session diaries, I guess, of disintegration, the recording of disintegration, um, which famously there was a fire in Robert Smith's room, which is what Pictures of You is about. Um, his room literally burned to a crisp. And... Um, Lowell Tolhurst's memory of that is that he was in the room next to him and then Robert had to leave and then he was literally alone in this like wing of the house during the bottoming out of his alcoholic period. It's a, it's a pretty sad bit of information to tie into all that. But yeah, definitely look out, look up um, Roger O'Donnell's Disintegration Diary. It's awesome. So now we're in Boys Don't Cry, the single that never was. This was supposed to be a fucking top 10 hit. Chris Perry was never fucking, could never accept the song, didn't succeed. So he had to re-record it. In 1986, right around the time this came out, the design language, the logo and the scribbles and all this shit that's on this VHS carry over into the MTV-friendly, you know, video for Boys Don't Cry. Now, they had Michael Dempsey, the original bassist who only played on The Cure's first record. Um, They had him come back, which is the coolest fucking move, and he stands behind the screen and is the shadow of the boy. Um, If you watch the 1986 video for Boys Don't Cry, the new voice mix, um... That was a really cool move. And Lowell is on the drums and, and they have this, um, it's just a really brilliant video. This is sort of like Tim Pope's genius. The whole concept of the Boys Don't Cry video was beautiful. But the re-recording was a total flop. It, 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 if anything, it, it made the song worse. It made it flat and more mid-tempo and kind of like, instead of kind of like speedy and and taut and, and uh, hyper, the way the original Boys Don't Cry was. I mean, the original Boys Don't Cry does sort of suffer for Lowell's playing and his, you know, skill at that time. Um, and the snare, you know, he's one of these guys who doesn't – he couldn't play a rim shot. Everything is just the the tip of the drumstick on the snare, which has this fat kind of, you know, dead sound that's very – it's more suited to, like, you know, rural Canyon shit like the Eagles than than punk or pop. But um, part of that also is that I didn't think it was particularly well produced. But Yeah, so – Boys Don't Cry had uh, two different incarnations, both of which failed, much to the chagrin of of Chris Perry, who thought it was, uh, I think he said he thought it was kind of like almost a John Lennon type song. Might have gone that far. So this is uh, this this is it. This is the second encore. I think the Cure are doing like seven encores at this point. They were already doing two encores in 1986. I mean, they talk about getting stadium rock, having been raised on stadium rock, you know. Um, that move, uh, was, was a favorite for them really early on. So yeah. Faith. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's so bad. It's just, it's like stained glass, stained glass windows. It's, you know, yeah, it's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful melody. Um, and it's actually fairly original and i think he is playing the basics in this too if you're watching um they had a couple this is the white six, which is like invaluable i don't know what it's worth but um yeah faith man um this is the, this is the tough part you know i like i said i think it's a legitimate song it's a legitimate um dirge and kind of you know emotional uh, moment for him as a as a young man as a very young man was the kid from my perspective anyway and uh, more so than the other kind of tinky, um, gothy stuff like Funeral Party and Drowning Man. I love both those songs, but just, you know, Faith is more of a, it's it, it has more of a standard kind of uh, structure to it. And, uh, you know, I, I'm hard-pressed to say anybody who's not a Cure fan is going to be impressed by the song Faith. You know, there's a point where you've got to just be like, like if you're like a music fanatic and you love music and all the different things music can do, you know, great. You know, you can dive in and out and talk about things or whatever. But, you yeah, know, I don't know where faith fits in that conversation. You know, it's a conversation between Cure fans and Robert Smith, you know. Um, I don't think it's part of the broader conversation of popular music the way that, you know, I would argue that things like, um, you know, push could be. Or that primary could be, or you know, even something as as unhinged as Shake Dog Shake. You know, I would say on this is uh, is a song I would recommend to people. I guess is what I'm saying there. Ten fifteen Saturday night. You know, I you that's a that's a song you'd use. In, it's a cure exemplar. It's something you're gonna play for people, and to this day, you know, there's not much that sounds like Ten 1015 is a weird fucking song. I mean, he came up with the idea of just being like nothing. There's nothing there. I don't want there to be anything. Just t- 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 I mean, I you know, it was almost like a novelty song in that way. And the crowds, he tells the anecdotes when they were when they were younger and they played that people would make him play that song all the fucking they played it like six times at one show in the in like 78, 79 because it was like it was a rock song, you know, but it also had this cool fucking, you know, dropout that was so long and weird and it was like, "Holy shit, you know, it was brilliant." That's what it was. Um, and yeah, if you if you were going to put together, you know, uh, a greatest hits, if you wanted to explain to people what the Cure is about, they're, they're about a lot of different things at a lot of different points in their career. But if I'm going to pull down, you know, all the the songs that I think make this band worth keeping alive and make this band worth explaining to people in a historical sense, which is so hard to do because they're still fucking out there. And if you you know if you're a pop fan and you see this guy who's your grandfather's age with like fucking paint pouring off his face, you know, playing the end of the world or all these awful new songs. I mean, how do you recommend that? You know, I did a two-part podcast with uh, Matthew Perpetua and my friend Elliot Bush Wheaton about REM because of at that time when REM was still together, well, they weren't together when we did the podcast, but there was a period when REM were still together where it was like, you please just fucking break up. Like, I want to tell people how great you were, but what you're doing now sucks. It just sucks. It's not any good. Metallica, why, did, why do you still make music? You did your thing, you know? And um, there were some great, you know, great rejoinders to that. Matthew came back at me and said, Chris, do, what, 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 what if I said, like, oh man, I really wish Chris and his wife would get divorced? They were so much more fun and they were so much more attractive when they were younger. And he's right. You can't begrudge an artist, and uh, like I said before about The Cure being an economy unto itself. It's just going to keep going. But I'm kind of fighting that in a way here. And I've always kind of fought that to say, this is a band that's really majorly important. But because they're so successful and so famous and Robert Smith's image is so just ingrained in popular culture as like that stamp, you know, that like one liner, Morrissey you know, Robert Smith, uh, you know, the, the comic book aspect of him. It It's just made it really hard for people who are like obsessive music fans, music critics, music historians to keep this band's context, you know, correct and keep it going and keep it part of the thread of what we talk about. And there's other bands, you know, I I just saw if, looking at my, my wall of CDs here. There's other bands that have spectacular discographies that literally do not exist without music critics telling you that they did, you are never going to hear about the the Matt Johnson unless a music critic tells you about it. Nothing about the way music works and the celebration of pop music works works in favor of that band. And there's there's dozens and dozens of bands like this That you're just never going to hear about. But you're going to hear about The Cure for fucking ever. It'll never stop. And all the, you know, dorks that were my age in college who first heard about decent music from fucking Pavement won't shut up about Pavement, who had two good records. You know, they won't shut up about fucking Radiohead. They're going to beat you over the head with all these bands that were the bands that turned them on. And that's sort of what I'm doing with The Cure, to be honest. But I'm doing it because nobody else is doing it from a perspective of like, this is historically important music. It's not all of it. No. And a lot of it is like, this is a band that is the cult of the band. You know what I mean? Like you have this huge ingrained audience that has all this, you know, Minutia that they've absorbed, and that that they obsessively you know trade back and forth with each other, and the bootlegging and and you know all the little things. This performance of this, The Cure has that. I mean, it, they almost have that more than any other band. It, it's their fan base is about as crazed as it gets. You're talking Grateful Dead. You're talking Pink Floyd. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is I get all that, and I've been that, and I've seen that but there's worth here for everyone else too. You know, there's worth for people who just want to understand the thread of where their favorite music came from, you know? Like, I'm a Pixies fan. I love Sunny Day Real Estate. I'm getting into emo. I'm reading Ian Cohen, baby. (sighs) You know, I mean, if you grew up listening to fucking Fall Out Boy and, you know, I don't know what was on the radio, early 2000s, mid 2000s fucking phoenix tx or whatever you know even the late 90s early 2000s you know if you're blink 182 kid and you're like 9 10 years old and you're hearing that that's your fucking that's your first you know thing that's your first glimpse of all of this i still think blink 182 were great they had some fucking great songs man great singles band and even they you know they even had some decent album songs like i what was that pathetic um was great on dude ranch like those guys were fun as shit, you know? And they were they were fucking crazy fast and and in many cases tight as shit and whatever. Great. So first thing they did when they got a bunch of money and fame, they got Robert Smith to sing on their record. Should fucking tell you something. This guy and this band inspired almost everything you like. Almost all the music that people my age have been telling you for the last 10 years is important owes something to the cure even pavement and um, yet the cure don't get kept alive they're in this weird void you know and that shit pisses me off appropriately Give Me It is now playing which is the most pissed off insane thing Robert Smith ever recorded maybe banana fish bones is an argument there but uh, this is when he was really fucked up (sighs) This is when he's just... All of the top is self-loathing. It's just nonstop self-loathing. You know, looking in the mirror, I hate myself. I'm a fucking piece of shit. I'm a drug-abusing fucking craphead. <laughs> I don't know. But um, I'm surprised they still play this. I was, I was surprised they were still playing it in 86. God, two years after it was recorded. Hey, I mean... Shiver and Shake was kind of on because 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 he was like a redux of, of this um, you know thrash like, impulse. It's fucking crazy. And since Andy since Andy Anderson was playing on the top and playing on those, um, the, the concert like I said and the and the top tour, he was so fucking good at this stuff. Like Andy Anderson in any kind of aggressive four four rock song, just slaughtered. Was he was just fucking unbelievable. Boris is okay with it, but it's not really his thing. Boris is like a mid-tempo guy. And then he ended up flourishing um, with Wish with like End, if you listen to that one, and even From the Edge of Deep Green Sea and like High. He ended up like being perfect for that whole like sort of pseudo shoegaze post-baggy thing. And I, I talked in the Simon Reynolds podcast about Never Enough um, as being, you know, like I am a child of Bowie and Hendrix. Like that was what informed my entire like adoration of rock. Like, that's what made me want to play rock music, you know? And Never Enough is totally that. The problem with Never Enough is what's getting left to history is the bullshit single mix. Fuck that noise. You got to get what was called the big mix. The big mix of Never Enough builds the song up, which is the way it's supposed to fucking be. It starts out with the guitar, and then you get the drums coming in, and it's just like the guitar is—that song is well, that song's just all about the guitar production and the guitar lines. And you get way more of that, and it's produced way better. On the big mix. So that's, you know, again, greatest hits, streaming, this compression of the record of records into whatever the artists or the rights holders decide will survive. Big fucking problem. Really pisses me off. I get crazy about that. And never enough big mix is one of those problems where you have a way better version of a thing that's not being kept alive for whatever reason. Um, So you got to find that. And it's much more enjoyable than Give Me It, live or on record, which just, I believe, ended. Nope, it's still going on. Jesus Christ. What's Porl doing? I don't even know. Oh, yeah, this is the awful flailing end where Porl picks up the saxophone. Okay, so yeah. Um, <clears throat> Give Me It is coming to a close. Thank God. Oh, it's over. Oh, man, I just don't like that song. Um, and now we're getting into the the twin close out of this whole thing which is as i said 10:15 saturday night and killing an arab now i don't i think after the iraq war smith started calling killing an arab killing an other um they got a load of shit, not their fault in the mid 80s so when the greatest hits album came out standing on a beach the singles which w- again in service to the whole idea of fans the the tape was a double length tape the flip side of the tape was all their b-sides like, you know, really obscure, weird shit. Like Splintered in her head. And Another Journey by Train, which is a total fan favorite. Um, th- it was So it was like two albums in one, which was really cool for a fan. But when this came out, this is the first time anybody in America had really heard The Cure. And they were getting plugged to play The Cure. Um, they had had the hit with in between days. And so Close to Me had done sort of okay, not much. So they get this record. And these jocks are looking. And there's a song called Killing an Arab. So... There's a hostage crisis in the Middle East somewhere. You would had the Beirut barracks bombing. I've said before, my cousin was killed in that, uh, Tommy, Julian. And um, so there's, to- I mean, when has there not been, you know, redneck anti-Arab sentiment, anti-Middle East sentiment in America? We've been doing this shit for a long time. And so jocks start playing this song during some crisis or other and announcing it like, as a militaristic, like, you know, I mean, it's a fucking, it's about a Camus novel. Like, are you nuts? Yeah. Like those guys have totally read that. They've read the stranger. Um, so Smith ends up putting, he ends up putting a sticker on the record that says the song killing an Arab has absolutely no racist overtones whatsoever. My copy still has that same, that sticker on it. Um, but, uh, it got, it just kept getting away from him and he kept hearing it happen and it made him fucking crazy. So he just said, you know, forget it. Every time we play this now, I'm gonna sing. I'm gonna sing it as "Killing and Other" because it's just not worth it. It's just pop music. You know, it's not worth the mis- mistranslation to me anymore. Um, for a fucking stupid little dinky, you know, Arabic pastiche song I wrote off a melody I learned in guitar class when I was fucking seventeen. And I think he made the right call. I never liked the song that much anyway. You know, uh, the flip side. I guess it was technically a double A side. Ten fifteen is a way better song. Way more like representative of what The Cure were when they started, when they were, you know, three imaginary boys. Ugh, I can't end it there. Like another five minutes. That was so good. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what do I end on? What's something I can end on? <sighs> I don't know. They're just a really good band. They're a really good band. A really good band in a number of different guises for quite a long time. You know, I mean, they had a 15-year run of, like, important historic pop music that's debatably, you know, significant to some and to others. But you're not going to find too many people who are going to be like, fuck, just like heaven, you know what I mean? Or, like, pictures of you, total piece of shit. It's really difficult to, like, completely write off the cure on a musical basis. If you want to talk about his image and you're that shallow about pop music, okay, that's up to you. But like, if you're a critic, and you're somebody who has a critical impulse, if you're, if you're a kind of a librarian, a personal librarian, somebody who absorbs pop music and wants to know about all these different things that have happened in pop music in the past, you know, I, y- this is not a band you can, you can turn away from. It's an important band to, to explore. Just like, you know, any other... Like I said before, I, I keep coming back to the idea there's an analog there for The Who, strangely. Um, for the kind of theatric pinball wizard, you know, stuff that The Who did at a time... You know, in Quadrophenia. At a time when they were so divorced from the reality of, of what was cool. And The Cure only really had one period where they were cool. The Cure were cool from in America and in England from 89, 88, 89 to 92. They won, um, a Brit. I think the, I forget what they call it over there. The award, they won the best band whatever. Roger Daltrey from the who came out and inducted them and said, you know, when I was told I was going to be presenting this award, I was afraid I was going to have to present it to a drum machine, but fortunately I'm presenting it to the cure. And, uh, a lot of those guys, the, the classic rock guys, fucking love The Cure. They didn't, I mean, shit, dude, they they grew up with Bowie. So Robert Smith's not anything new. It's a fucking gimmick. It's his look, whatever. Everybody did that shit. Um, or a lot of bands did that shit, you know? It didn't stop Bowie from being like one of the most important fucking musicians ever. Fucking Sgt. Pepper, are you kidding me with that shit? The fucking crap they were wearing? Th- it's theater. It's part of the deal. You know, Smith had a, a really great you know, look, it was really weird. It wasn't like sexual in the way that boy George was, you know what I mean? It had like a weird ambivalently masculine. It's like, it's almost like you go back to like France, you know what I mean? Like pre-revolutionary France and this kind of like this theatrical male beauty that's not, it's still totally heterosexual, but you know, it's weird. It's weird. It's just a weird, a weird thing. But in any case, from from eighty eight to ninety two, they were logging huge chart hits. Love song went to number two in America, I believe. Might have been number four. Friday, I'm in love was an absolutely massive hit. On the back of that, that MTV did a big premiere for High, the lead single. Like they had a lead single that they knew wasn't the big hit. They were big enough that they were staging singles based on how, you know, how likely to be a smash they were. You'd have like a decent kind of off kilter lead single and then you'd like hit him with the down the line Friday I'm in love and they did that sort of with um, with Kiss Me and they did it with um, with Disintegration too you know because I think the first single from Disintegration I can't even believe it, I don't remember this like off the top of my head I think it was Fascination Street um, which is great but not a radio single you know and then it was like Pictures of You and Lullaby it was a fucking huge hit because they had the video which was just like perfect. Uh, lullaby is still, I, that's something I should fucking mention, man. Lullaby is like one of the most original pop songs ever full stop. There's nothing that sounds like that song. Like Simon Reynolds and I were talking, he was saying there's nothing that sounds like how soon Is now true, but it's just a fucking loop lullaby compositely. There is nothing that sounds like that. And that is a far more enduring single, particularly in the UK, um, than a lot of their catalog. I, I, that, that is a really peculiar and brilliant song. Lullaby, but, um, yeah, they had like, I think five singles off Disintegration. Unbelievable. Um, but yeah, this stuff is, um, this is their, this is their imperial period, you know, with Boris Williams. And for that reason, when everything was working and everything fit right and the music was backing it up and they were still dead sexy and young enough, um, that shit just gets fucking locked, gets locked in. This is the record of what you are, when you are the most, you know, and everything else is just kind of orbits around it and it, but it's not the thing whether you like it or not, you know, the, those, those periods in a, in a legacy, massive band that runs for 10 years plus years of critical and popular relevance, some period in there, some part of that body of work ends up being definitive and the rest of it just ends up being shades of kind of memories or accents of the thing that really was the thing. It's like the Pixies, right? You know, they had, they had Surfer Rosa and they had Doolittle and everything else is just kind of, you know, less than. And, uh, you know, even though the cure have sort of two periods of that, in the sense of having had that early trilogy, you know, that's the real trilogy, 17 seconds, faith pornography, they have that. And then they also have, you know, when they come out of it, three years later, this totally revelatory new power, this, this completely exploded, expanded power in that period with Boris Williams. Um, nothing to beat it, nothing to beat it for me. Um, more complex, more aggressive, more powerful, you know, bands, sure, out there. But nobody liked The Cure. Even if you listen to a band as strong as Echo and the Bunnymen were, Um, and their best stuff, The Cutter and, and, you know, these incredible Killing Moon, these incredible just string-filled, soaring romantic pop songs. Great stuff, you know, historically great stuff, interred, never going away. The Cure were just doing that like it was nothing. Robert Smith was popping that, those songs out. He was scribbling off stuff that just ridiculous, endurance, timeless. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> well, there it is, right at the end of, the, of an orange. The song, Killing an Arab, has absolutely no racist overtones whatsoever. It is a song which uh, decries the existence of all prejudice and, oh, man. I, hold on, i got to rewind it. I'm rewinding a VHS tape. The Song Killing an Arab <laughs> The Song Killing an Arab has absolutely no racist overtones whatsoever. It is a song which decries the existence of all prejudice and consequent violence. The cure condemn its use in furthering anti-Arab feeling. Exclamation point. That's my boys.